0: Today's case will deal with the issue of mutuality of obligation, and this issue comes up when one party in the contract promises only to fulfill their side of the bargain based on some condition that is in his or her control. So for example, if I promise to paint your house next week, and you promise to pay me $1,000 only if you felt like it, then the judge would have to address the issue of whether both sides of the contract are actually obligated to do anything. Okay, so let's go into today's case. Today's case is Wood versus Lucy Lady Duff Gordon, and it took place in the Court of Appeals of New York in 1917. The purpose of this case is to learn about whether there can be implied obligations in contracts. And this case was written by a judge named Benjamin Cardozo, uh, and he was a famous judge, and uh, if you continue to learn about law, you'll probably hear his name quite a few times. So let's jump into the facts about this case. First, on one side of this contract, we have a person named Wood, and he was an advertising agent who would help sell uh, clothes. And then there was L- Lady Duff Gordon, and uh, she was an interesting character. She's sort of a, a historical figure. Uh, she's what we would call in modern terms today a fashion influencer. Uh, basically, she designed clothing, clothing styles, um I think she had some of her own lines, and whenever she said a certain uh, article of clothing was cool or fashionable, uh, that had a big impact uh, on the sales of that item, made it much more popular. Um, So, Lady Duff Gordon and Wood entered into a contract with each other. Um, And here are the terms. Lady Duff Gordon gave Wood the exclusive right to put her endorsements on, on uh, articles of clothing and the exclusive right to license her designs out to others. And in return, Wood promised to give Lady Duff Gordon one half of all the profits and revenues. So at some point in this agreement, um, Lady Duff Gordon broke the terms of the contract and she started selling out her designs uh, and her endorsements to other businesses. And so Wood came and sued Lady Duff Gordon for breach of contract. So let's jump into the arguments here. And uh, Lady Duff Gordon is arguing that there's no contract in the first place because it lacked mutuality of obligation. While Wood got the exclusive right to her endorsements and her designs, he didn't actually have to do anything in return He could have just not used any of her endorsements or designs at all if he wanted to. So he wasn't actually bound in any way. So let's pretend that you're the judge and you have to rule in this case and decide whether or not there's mutuality. There's actual mutuality of obligation in this contract. If you're in our pod talk group, go ahead and leave a comment and tell me what your ruling is. So let's talk about the ruling. Judge Cardozo ruled that this was in fact a contract and it did in fact have mutuality of obligation on both sides. And here's his reasoning. Uh, And this was actually kind of a big change when this happened. Uh, So it's kind of a big deal. While there's no explicit term in the contract that said Wood had an obligation to make a good faith effort to use this exclusive right to actually sell clothes and to make some money, Judge Cardozo said that this term was essentially implied. And I want to read this quote. It's sort of a famous quote from this opinion. It says, A promise may be lacking, and yet the whole writing may be instinct with an obligation, imperfectly expressed. So in other words, if someone is going to sell an exclusive right or privilege to someone, the implied understanding of that contract, unless otherwise stipulated, is that the seller will make their best effort to supply the goods uh and whether that be like an actual good or a clothing design or whatever, and the buyer will use their best efforts to promote the sell of those goods. That's the implied understanding of that type of contract, okay, so you may have a few questions after that ruling, and um first, I wanna kind of break it down real simply. and and ask just first up why this contract would have failed in the first place. So let's think about why this contract lacked mutuality of obligation. If, if judge Cardozo had only gone off the explicit terms of the contract. So according to the explicit terms of the contract, lady Duff Gordon gave the exclusive right to her designs and endorsements to wood. Now, if wood were to actually choose to sell this clothing, then, uh, then he would have to split the the proceeds with her. But Wood in, but in fact, Wood didn't have to do that. Uh, suppose Wood had, had his own clothing line, and maybe he was trying to promote another fashion influencer who was in competition with Lady Duff Gordon. In that case, he could choose not to sell any of uh, Lady Duff Gordon's design in favor of this competing influencer that he was perhaps courting. Uh, and in return, uh, Lady Duff Gordon would get nothing because there'd be no profits because he didn't sell anything. So in that case, you can see that it's almost like that contract was essentially a gift. Lady Dove Gordon giving the gift of exclusivity to Wood. And she got nothing in return. So hopefully that shows this kind of underlying issue as why this contract needed this extra implied term for it to be a valid contract, to have that mutuality of obligation. Now, that being said, there still leads to question why Judge Cardozo went this route and decided to add the implied term to uphold the contract instead of just letting the contract uh, sort of die out or be invalid. So this touches on an important topic in, uh, or concept in contract law, and that is default rules. Default rules in contract law um, are the rules that courts will automatically read into a contract if the contract stays silent about a certain issue. So in this contract between Wood and Lady Duff Gordon, uh, the contract didn't say whether or not Wood actually had uh, to make a good faith effort to sell Lady Duff Gordon's clothes. So in that case, what what, what should we assume about the intent of the parties? Should we assume that they both meant for Wood to have the option to not sell any of Lady Duff Gordon's clothes? Or should we assume, like Judge Cardozo did, That they intended for Wood to at least make a good faith effort to actually make some money with this exclusive right that Lady Dev Gordon gave him. I think, from just a common sense perspective, uh, Judge Cardozo's assumption seems to make sense. It seems far more likely that that would be the intention of the parties and contracts like this. Uh, And so, that's why I believe that Judge Cardozo went that route and said, that's going to be the default rule for these type of contracts and according to the casebook this was actually a big change uh compared to how contract law was dealt with or these type of contracts were dealt with in the past um and so this is this is sort of a significant opinion and it may be worth you actually going and read some of the, the actual case text yourself so that's it for the case uh but today i'm going to add a little bonus material um in this casebook that i'm using it has this uh this historical account and some more biographical information about lady duff gordon i thought it might be interesting to share so i'm just going to read it straight from the book and this comes from walter pratt's american contract law at the turn of the century and this that was written in 1988 so i'm going to start reading this lucy lady duff gordon led a charmed life she and her husband sir cosmos duff gordon booked a booked separate first class cabins on the maiden voyage of the titanic after the Titanic hit the iceberg, she and her husband managed to board a lifeboat and survive. Although Sir Cosmos never quite overcame the stigma of being a male survivor in a half full lifeboat, Lucy uh, continued her innovative ways. And now it starts uh, quoting verbatim from this Walter Pratt book. As she did with the general development of the period, Lucy personified the particular changes in the economy and in contract practice. Very much independent, Lucy renounced the traditions of her generation when she began her own business, designing women's clothing. Like many of the entrepreneurs of the period, Lucy started with little capital. Nevertheless, after after overcoming early difficulties, she established herself by 1900 as one of the preeminent designers of fashion for women. In a matter typical of the personal style of the American economy during the Reconstruction era, Lucy at first designed only for individual women for specific grand occasions, such as coronations and state funerals. Because her designs were created for one woman to wear on a particular occasion, they became known as personality dresses. As the times changed, so did Lucy. First, she became a company with the name Lucille. Later, in 1910, she opened a branch office in New York City, where she continued to embody the economic changes by depersonalizing her services. In common with much of the production in the United States, Lucy no longer personally designed each dress for each customer. Instead, she hired others to design and sew. She even began to produce more than one dress of each design. With the change in style and the concentration of population in urban areas, Lucy could now profit from marketing multiple copies of the same design. In addition, Lucy hired a manager for her branch office, further increasing the distance between herself and her customers. She would no longer be able to devote personal attention to each client for each occasion. Lucy also came to appreciate that something as ephemeral as her name could be of value in the emerging consumer society of the United States. As seller after seller saw production overtake demand in the last years of the 19th century, Advertising became increasingly important, both to inform buyers of products and to persuade customers to buy. To take advantage of that new demand, Lucy turned to an advertising agent, yet another intermediary between herself and her clients. Lucy brought Wood's lawsuit upon herself when, in one of the more innovative decisions of her career, she arranged with Sears, Roebuck & Company to sell her dresses through its catalogs. Sears published the first catalog, which it called a Portfolio, of Lucy's designs for the Fall and Winter of 1916 and 1917. That Lucy was once again at the forefront of commercial practice was evident from a comment in the trade journal, Printer's Inc., which reported that the announcement of the agreement threw, quote, a bomb into the camp of rival mail-order houses, end quote. The announcement, the journal further explained, was, quote, by far the most spectacular bid for prestige which this daring advertiser, as in Sears, has made since it first announced the new handy edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So that part was just an interesting uh, historical tidbit, some background about this case, about the characters involved. I just think that part, that stuff can be somewhat interesting. But um, as always, if you have any questions or comments, reach out to me either through PodTalk, email, Twitter, uh, whatever, and I uh, hopefully talk to you next time.